0: Well, on Sunday morning, that song that you just heard or maybe even sang along with, we're going to be singing that in a community center. And we're going to be singing it in a community center that is in a state and in a school district that really has a great reputation for education. And singing along with that song, there's going to be doctors, there's going to be lawyers, there's going to be people who work at Medtronic, there's going to be people who work at 3M, Boston Scientific, people who've got master's degrees, PhDs. Why? Why are so many people who are that highly educated, why are they going to be singing along with a song about miracles? Miracles, you know, in the 21st century. Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. For those of you who are just joining us, we're in part five of a seven-part series called Why Jesus? And we spent the first three weeks in this series trying to lay some groundwork to say, why is it that we believe that Jesus was a real person? Why is it we believe that these testimonies about him are credible? Now what we did is we, we, shift, we turned a corner starting last week, and then for the rest of the series, we're going to look at some of those claims themselves. You know, why Why do we, what, what is it about these claims that we can learn from and, and apply and, and and take a look at? Well, today, we're going to zero in on the claim that signs and wonders didn't just happen, but they can happen today. We're going to be looking at that. We've recommended a whole lot of real helpful resources over the course of this series and you can go to emmanuel.church slash Jesus, and we've got a list of some some great resources. Um, also, if you go to, in your inbox, if you're signed up for ECC mail, if you go there and take a look, this week I sent out an email that not only says a little bit more about these resources, but also you're going to get some of the quotes that we're going to use today as well as, we're so many of them. There's some quotes that we're not having here today that you can take a look at as well that we just just won't have time to get into. Well, one of the resources that we recommend during the series, it comes with an asterisk, and that's this one. It's called The Triumph of Christianity. It's by Bart Ehrman. And the reason this comes with an asterisk is we agree with so much of what he has to say, but um, at least from a historical perspective, but, but he says, you know, I, I just can't believe the miracles. I just can't believe that those things actually happened. It was interesting, I I was watching a video, um, I think it was a debate that he was having with this other guy, and because he's a historian, what he says, his his reasoning for that is, he says, you know, as a historian, I have to deal with probabilities. And he says, miracles aren't probable, and so I have to go with the, the next best explanation. I appreciate that honesty, but I disagree with that approach. If you're taking notes, I want to invite you to write this down. A sincere search for truth doesn't begin with a conclusion. I'll say that again. A sincere search for truth doesn't start with a conclusion. Today, as the son of a mechanical engineer, as somebody who was pre-med in college, as someone who lives by the motto, Facts of Our Friends, I'm going to challenge conventional wisdom when it comes to these, these things. I've come to believe that the laws that govern our universe, they're compatible with the Bible's claims. And I'm not alone. voice in this. If you're looking for a great resource that's committed to following the facts, one that we've recommended throughout this series is this one. It's called Cold Case Christianity. The author is a guy who um, was a cold case murder detective who said, I'm an atheist, but I've never really given Christianity a chance. And so he applied the same techniques that he used as a cold case investigator to Christianity and became a Christian as a result of this. So here's what he says as a cold case murder investigator. Here's what he says about not starting with the conclusion, but following the facts. Here's what he says in his own words. He says, I was asking the question, does a supernatural being exist after first excluding the possibility of anything supernatural? As a skeptic, I was slow to accept even the slightest possibility that miracles were possible. But after my experience with presuppositions at the crime scene, I decided I need to be fair with my naturalistic inclinations. I couldn't begin with my conclusion. And if the evidence pointed to a reasonable existence of God, well, this certainly opened up the possibility of the miraculous. Now, it doesn't mean I now rush to the supernatural explanations every time I fail to find an, an easy or quick natural explanation. It simply means I'm open. Open to following the evidence wherever it leads even if it points to the existence of a miraculous designer. He goes on to say, all that I'm doing is I'm asking you to do what I ask any jury to do, and that is to make a reasonable, um, reasonable judgment based on the facts, the evidence itself. All right, well, if you're taking notes, what I want to do right now is I just want to quickly give a rough framework for conventional thinking when it comes to miracles. So here's, when when I talk to people, here's, here's a framework that a lot of people have when it comes to the miraculous. Number one, conventional Western thinking. Miracles can't happen, so they didn't. Miracles can't happen, so they didn't. It is very common for modern minds to begin with the conclusion that miracles did not happen because they cannot happen. And critics say miracles can't happen because of number two. Number two, miracles require a suspension of the laws that govern the universe. So they're not possible. Again, this is the conventional wisdom. That rational people only believe what they can personally observe or personally verify. And that brings us to number three. Seeing is believing, so let's put God to the test. I used to think that number three was such a mic drop argument. It made so much sense to me. Right? If God is God, then he can just prove it. He could just make this paralytic... Whole. Raise this person from the dead. God, if you're God, do it. Convince us right here. Before I'm done today, I want to challenge that entire premise. Beginning with this. Here's what the ancient testimonies that are included in our Bible ask us to consider. When it comes to miracles, credible people invite sincere investigators to consider incredible things. If you're a historian, one of the challenges you have is what do you do specifically with a first century individual named Paul? What do you do with his writings? And the reason I'm going to zero him out is because there's very little controversy out there among historians that the person we call the Apostle Paul was real. It, it's almost universally accepted. He was real. It's also almost universally accepted that he wrote most of the letters we find in our Bible, including First Corinthians. There's very little serious debate out there that there was a real person named Paul. He converted to Christianity. He wrote this letter called 1 Corinthians to the Corinthians. Very little debate about that. So here's why this is problematic. Here's how Ehrman puts it in his own words. He says this, Paul preached that God raised Jesus from the dead. Remember, this is a person who doesn't believe miracles are are, are happen. He says, Paul preached God raised Jesus from the dead. Paul could swear to it. He did swear to it. Moreover, he was a reasonable, intelligent, clear-thinking human being. With his own eyes, he sincerely believed that he had seen the crucified Jesus alive again. Let's take a look. Let's take a look at excerpts from his actual letter. So here it is, a first century letter. If you have your Bible with you, open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses uh, 3 and 4. We're going to take a look at. Um, If you don't have a Bible at home, we'd encourage you to go to Bible.com. You can download a free Bible app there. It's it's a fantastic uh, resource. All right, so here's what this person, who was a real person, writing to real people, here's what he says, uh, verses 3 through 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received... That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Hmm. Let's take a, let's take a little bit deeper look at that. For Paul, the story of Jesus is a true story. For Paul, it's a true story of a real person on a real timeline who is involved in real events. And not only here in this letter, but in multiple letters that he wrote, Paul claims that a material, physical resurrection took place. That's what he's saying. Now, if you're a modern mind, you might be thinking, yeah, but that's the old days. Back when everybody was superstitious and they believed these kind of things. How many of you know that it's not that simple? Corinth, we know a lot about Corinth. It was a world-class city where no well-educated, status-conscious citizen was eager to go on record saying, yeah, I believe that people just rise from the dead in their day, as in our day. It was understood that if a person was crucified on a cross and there was a Roman soldier who verified they were dead by shoving a spear into their side, and then you put that person in a tomb that was guarded by soldiers, it was understood that person doesn't come back from that. That was understood. Paul knows what the recipients of his letter are thinking. They're thinking what we would be thinking. They would be thinking that is impossible. To which Paul would say, yes, that's my point. The impossible happened. And that is why we're all in on Jesus. That's the claim he's making. And Look at this. He says, if you don't believe us, don't believe me. We got witnesses. This is also in his letter for them all to read. First Corinthians 15, 5-9. He appeared to Cephas who they knew as Peter. He appeared to more than 500 people. He appeared to James. He appeared to me. So we've got witnesses to this. Now, the further we get away from the first century, the more you hear people saying things like, well, what they meant by that was that he, it was as if he was still present among them through his teaching and through his his ideals that live on through the followers. Does that sound like what he's trying to say here? it 's not he 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 was testifying along with the early church they were testifying to a resurrection from death to life that 's what they're testifying to look how central these facts are to paul let 's go back to this letter again these are his letter his own words um, you've translated into english all right verses fourteen to fifteen if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is what what does it say in vain. He just doesn't, he says your faith is in what? If your faith is just in an ideal, he says, it's in vain. He says, we've been even been found to be misrepresenting God. He's all in on this. He really believed that this happened, or at least is trying to make that case. Now for the record, not everything you read in the Bible is literal. There are parables in the Bible. There's poetry in the Bible. This isn't that. This is a a testimony. This is what he says he believed. The fact that Christ died on that hill is one of the hills Paul was willing to die on. Okay, so earlier, earlier I gave you what I would call a modern mindset mic drop. I probably would have used it myself when I was trying to walk away from the faith. And it goes like this. Miracles can't happen, so they didn't. Miracles require a suspension of laws that govern the universe. And that seeing is believing, so let's put God to the test. Well, let's turn a corner. Instead of starting with those conclusions, what if we ask some questions? What if we ask some questions? So here's a question. Number one, what's Paul's point in first Corinthians 15? His point is that the impossible happened. The impossible happened. That brings us to then question number two. Could it be possible if he's describing a real experience, could it be possible that there are higher laws, or laws that we just don't know of yet? Additional laws that we just haven't discovered. Is it possible? And before we get too dismissive of that, one of the things that often gets lost in this important conversation, we often don't stop to think that we're witness to the miracles around us every day. We just don't acknowledge it. right? We We are We are constantly surrounded by the incredible. We're constantly surrounded by the improbable and the seemingly impossible. We could talk about this for hours, but let's just give this one example. Life itself, life itself, the impossible happened. And that's not just me saying that. That's not the Christian community just saying that. This Our our non-Christian scientists, here's an example, a Nobel Prize winner, George Wall, says this. He goes, there's only two possible explanations as to how life arose here on this planet. You've got spontaneous generation arising through evolution, or you have a supernatural act of God. There's no third position. Spontaneous generation was scientifically disproved 120 years ago. That leaves us with only one other possibility— that life came as a supernatural creation by God. Look what he says, though. But I can't accept that philosophically because I don't want to believe in God. Therefore, I choose to believe in that which I know is scientifically impossible. I appreciate his honesty. That doesn't sound very scientific to me. What if, what if, what if we don't need to choose? What if we don't need to choose between believing that there's natural laws that govern us and the possibility that there's other laws or the possibility that maybe there are higher laws that certain laws have to bow to? What if? It was really interesting as I was doing my research for this, I came across some really good thinking on this subject. One of them, uh, the thoughts came from a professor of mathematics at Oxford He put it like this. He said, let's just say that you've got $1,000 and you're in a hotel and you put that $1,000 in a drawer. Let's say the next day you have another $1,000. You take that $1,000, you put it in that same drawer with the first $1,000. How much money do you have in that drawer? At least $2,000. Let's say on the third day you open up that drawer and there's only $500 there. Did the laws of mathematics get broken? He says, no. But probably laws against stealing did. He said, I like that perspective. You know, I I remember I was seeing the first Thor movie when it came out, the, the first one. And there was this scene... That just strike, sticks with me. There is a scene, this this guy Thor, he's, he's, he's trying to explain all these miraculous things that this character Jane had just experienced. And she's like, I can't get my head around this. And he's trying to explain it to her. And finally he says this, he goes, your ancestors called it magic. You call it science. He says, where I come from, it's one and the same. I remember watching that scene and thinking, I think he's onto something. I think he's on to something. You know, consider consider this. You know, these things that we call miracles, what if they're really a glimpse into a deeper reality? What if? And what if we're getting a glimpse of them on this side of God's return? Consider something like this. There's a claim that's made in Scripture that after Jesus was dead, he appeared to the disciples in a locked room. In a locked room. You know, how, how does that happen? Is that impossible? Well, maybe. Here's another quote I came across. They tell us that if the space between particles of energy in your body were removed, the matter that was left would fit on the head of a pin. The chair you sit on is just atoms held together by a force field. It is not unthinkable that Jesus in a new form could pass through a closed door. Interesting. Well, if you like a deeper dive into these concepts that we're talking about here, these perspectives, I highly recommend this book. It's an older copy, so I think the cover looks different now, but it's called Miracles. It's by C.S. Lewis. Great book. He says things like this. He said, you know, if you start with the conclusion that signs and wonders aren't possible, well, then you're going to be in situations where you're going to have multiple credible people testifying to the same thing, and if you're ruling out even the possibility of something that we call a miracle, then you're going to have to have explanations like these. And here's the quote. Things like collective hallucination, hypnotism of unconsenting spectators, widespread instantaneous conspiracy by persons not otherwise known to be liars and not likely to gain by the lie. All of these are known to be very improbable events. They're so improbable that, except for the special purpose of excluding a miracle, they're never even suggested. In his book, he makes this case. He says, theology offers you a working arrangement, which leaves the scientist free to continue the experiments and the Christian to continue his or her prayers. Can I get him into that? I wish he was still around and he would hang out with me more. That would just be so cool. The Bible sometimes refers to God's surprising actions as signs. If you're talking with folks, that might be a better word to use than miracle. Signs. What do signs do? Signs point to something. They point to something. Where do the signs in the Bible point if you follow them? They point to a universe that was designed with purpose. They point to the existence of a being with authority over nature, over evil, over death itself. And they ultimately point to what we call the gospel. Tim Keller, who was influenced a lot by Uh, C.S. Lewis' thinking, he put it like this. I don't want to be too hard on people who struggle with the idea of God's intervention in the natural order. Miracles are hard to believe in, and they should be. In Matthew 28, we're told the apostles met the risen Jesus on a mountainside in Galilee, and when they saw them, they worshiped him, but some what? Some doubted. That is a remarkable admission. Here is the author of an early Christian document telling us that some of the founders of Christianity couldn't believe the miracle of the resurrection. Even when they were looking straight at him with their eyes, touching him with their hands. There is no other reason for this to be in the account unless it really happened. The passage shows us several things. It's a warning. Not to think that only we modern scientific people have to struggle with the idea of the miraculous while the ancient, more primitive people didn't. The apostles responded like any group of modern people. Some believed with their eyes, some didn't. The most instructive thing about this text is, however, what it says about the purpose of biblical miracles. If you were tuning out because it's a long quote, tune back in for this. This is so key, so key. What's the purpose of these signs? They lead not simply to cognitive belief, but to worship, awe, and wonder. Jesus' miracles, in particular, were never magic tricks designed only to impress and coerce. You never see him say something like, hey, see that tree over there? Watch me make it burst into flames. Instead, he used miraculous power to heal the sick, feed the hungry, raise the dead. Why? Why? We modern people think of miracles as a suspension of the natural order, but Jesus meant them to be a restoration of the natural order. The Bible tells us God did not originally make the world to have disease, hunger, and death in it. Jesus has come to redeem where it is wrong and heal the world where it's broken. His miracles are not just proofs that he has power, but also wonderful foretastes of what he's going to do with that power. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds but a promise to our hearts that the world that we all want is coming. Isn't that good? Really good. Tim Keller, Reason for God. It's one of the books on our list. That's one of the reasons why. All right. So that is a good lead. And then to number three, a third question, third question when it comes to miracles. What can we learn about miracles on demand from a biblical precedent and personal experience. What about what about that argument? What about that argument that God could just end all of this, just do a miracle or two? Well, Jesus told a story about that. And his story, at least the point of the story was this: if people aren't open, if they're not open to what God's already revealed through the scriptures, even if a person rises from the dead, that's not going to be enough for him. And What happens after this story? Jesus rises, raises a guy named Lazarus from the dead. At least that's the claim. And what did people want to do? They didn't want to kill Jesus and they wanted to kill Lazarus. When Jesus himself rose, we just saw what happened. There were some who believed, but there were some who doubted. In all the examples, I didn't have a chance to go through and and look them all up. But in every example that I could think of, when someone came to Jesus and was asking for a miracle on demand, in every example I could think of, and sometimes this happened right after he already did a miracle, they asked for another one. In every instance I can think of, Jesus gave some some version of, you want miracles on demand? That's not how this works. That's not how this works. And when I look back at my own experience, and with people I know and myself, miracles don't have the lasting impact that I once thought that they would at least for many people. Scriptures testify to that. It's been my experience as well. All right, well, that said, that said, I believe you still can see them today. I believe we still do see miracles today. Signs and wonders. came across this quote in my research. Western theology invariably asks the question, are miracles possible? This, of course, addresses the enlightenment problem of a closed universe. In much of Asia, that's a non-question because miraculous is assumed. And it's what? Fairly regularly experienced. I got that quote from this book, um, Man, Myth, Messiah. In this book, you can go to page 186, and starting on page 186, he, he documents. He documents different miraculous events and occurrences um, that can be verified as best you can through the verification processes we use through other for other things. And many of us don't have to go look at page 186. Many of us, we've seen things firsthand that we can't explain any other way. In fact, um, one of the people who got a chance to see the manuscript earlier, Mike Lindsay, he said, you should just ask for a show of hands. So let's do it. Show of hands, how many of you have seen or experienced something they're like, I have no other way to explain this other than I saw something miraculous? Right. We, got a, we got a room full of hands here. And I'd imagine the same thing's going to happen at the community center when we do that. One of the things that I did is I went back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So same letter, a couple chapters earlier. Paul lists what he calls spiritual gifts, these supernatural gifts. I went through, I've personally seen or experienced almost everything on that list. Almost everything that he says is possible. I've personally seen and I've shared a lot of those stories different times before. So that begs the question, why don't we see him more often? Why don't we see him more often? Well, the Bible offers a number of explanations about that. Everything from lack of faith to wrong motives to asking for something that you shouldn't be asking for, not aligned with God's will, not asking at all shows up in the Bible. Timing shows up in the Bible. And then there's this. In that same letter, First Corinthians, in chapters 12 but also in 14, Paul specifically links the gifts of the Holy Spirit to the building of what he called his church, to the building up of this body. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it's the Holy Spirit is specifically linked the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to being His witnesses. So for what it's worth, your best shot at seeing a miracle up close, in my opinion, your best best chance, is to one, ask for the gift of the Holy Spirit, and two, get on the front lines of where God's at work. I'd say that's your best shot. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, unless you live near a railway... You're not going to see trains go past your window, he says. But that's really good. But then he goes on to say this, be careful what you wish for, because he's also, he's done a lot of work with history. He said this, miracles and martyrdoms tend to bunch at the same time in history. And these are areas <laughs> that we naturally have no wish to be frequent. In chapter 10 of Paul, or Luke's gospel, Jesus says something that puts everything we're talking about in perspective. Jesus had just appointed 72 people, we talked about this not too long ago, to go ahead of him to every town and place that he's about to go. And they came back with their eyes as big as saucers, and they said, Jesus, even the demons submitted to us in your name. And Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning, but don't rejoice that the demons submit to you in my name. Rejoice that your name is registered in heaven. That's, the, that's where this all points. What's my take on miracles? Let me close with these three thoughts. One, God is able. God is able. You know, when you're in a situation that's bigger than you, a situation that seems impossible, there is a God who can do abundantly more than we ask or imagine. Take number two, miracles on demand and authentic signs are two different things. And they point you two different directions. Miracles on demand are an attempt to confirm the God that fits your expectations. That's really what it is, if you're honest. Following signs wherever they lead, that's very different. Number three, authentic signs they point to that greatest miracle of all, the one that Jesus referenced with his disciple. this greatest miracle of all that somehow, somehow, in a way that I can't fully understand, somehow Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection made it possible, somehow that action made it possible for all who receive him, to all who believe in his name, to be adopted as his sons and daughters. To, to have our sins washed clean. Somehow that action resulted in this. For us to become temples of the Holy Spirit. For us to be welcomed as citizens of heaven. Here's where authentic signs point us to. It's the last of our talk points. Authentic Christianity, it's an invitation to place your faith in a resurrecting Savior. Not just resurrected, resurrecting transforming, changing us. And we want to give you an opportunity to do that today. Before we do, though, I just want to say thank you to you. I want to say thank you to you. Um, you know, I've been out of the office the last couple of weeks, and I'm going to be gone a couple of weeks here now, too, because we're investing in things that are for the future of our church, primarily our young people. Please, please, please be praying. We're going to be taking our youth up to camp. And, and it's one thing to talk about these things. It's another to experience them. And would you pray that the Holy Spirit is poured out upon these young people and they get to see and experience him and his goodness and what happens when we as a group of people come together and we say, God, we're going to try to live your ways. This weekend, we're going to try our absolute best to, to, to live according to everything and do everything in your name. Would you pray that they'll experience his presence there? And the reason I guess I'm saying thanks to this instead of just saying it is because it's getting increasingly uncommon for for even churches to go all in on young people. And we are all in, so thank you for that. For that. Well, let's pray then. Please pray for them. And please join me in praying that they choose to place their faith in the resurrected Jesus. The resurrected Jesus. Just as many of us are going to do right now. In that same letter, that same letter we've been looking at, Apostle Paul recounts something that Jesus did and something that he passed on, and it's this. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. When we were earlier we singing that song, House of Miracles, there was that line, your blood runs through my veins. What happens when you physically take food in your body? It becomes part of you. One of these miraculous things that happens, and I don't understand it is somehow these simple elements become for us. Whether it's literal or what, or spiritual, become for us his body and his blood running through our veins. As often as you eat of this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he's come. Now, there's so much that Paul doesn't say about the the sacrament that we call Holy Communion. He doesn't give a specific age. He doesn't give a specific method. He doesn't prescribe a specific type of bread or wine. But what he does say is this, let a person examine themselves. Which is why before we we commemorate communion together, we always pause and we try to have some time of reflection. And we would invite you wherever you are to join us in these prayers. And then not not just even with the words that we use, but make them your own. May this be a time where you sincerely come to this resurrected Jesus and you say, I'm all in. I'm all in, all of me. And for those of you at home, if you've gathered your elements. After you pray and then make these prayers your own, take that bread, that juice, dip that bread in that juice, receive that, and as you do remember, this is his body, this is his blood given for you. All right, well, I invite you then to join me in these prayers of preparation. Again, make them sincere, make them your own. Let's all pray together. Heavenly Father, to whom all hearts and minds are open and all desires are known, Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may more perfectly love you and more worthily magnify your holy name. We confess that we are sinners and cannot save ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us. That we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. We are not worthy for these gifts which we are about to receive. But say the word and we be made clean. God, you are so good. Thank you for revealing this miracle that we can't always see immediately. That you are doing something right here in this moment. That anything that we've done you know, to violate your your goodness and your standards, or that you wipe that record clean, and that you allow us the, the opportunity to come forth from this time as new people who are your kids, your sons and daughters. And then you challenge us. Now live a life worthy of the calling we've received. And you send your spirit and you surround us to others to help us on that path step by step. Lord, I pray that all of us would seize this opportunity right here, right now, to respond with a yes to that invitation. And that you would change us day by day. And Father, now we join our voices before we join our voices in these songs with this prayer that you taught your disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is a kingdom,